Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology with me, Kiasha Zaitz. Thailand um, is, you know, shifted to 5G, which is remarkable. And that is really because it wants to drive a huge digital economy. And, you know, if you come to Thailand, then the fintech, for example, is amazing. Um, even if I compare it to Europe, it's far, far superior, far more advanced than, than, than Europe, I would say. And when you think about the consumer population from a digital perspective, then it's forecast to reach around about 370 million people across APAC in 2022, and 8% the total population uh, would be 15 year olds and above so when we look at the penetration of things like mobile um across asia you know it's, it's significant so you know you see this huge drive towards um, providing the public with i guess more tools to be preventative and to screen from a population health perspective after an episode with farid bijoli gm for roche in thailand about what is Roche exploring in Thailand in terms of digital health. We're staying in the APEC region, but today focusing on China. I had the pleasure of chatting with Ruby Wang, former head of health for the UK government in China at the British Embassy in Beijing, and the former advisor on health policy for the United Nations Resident Coordinator's Office in China. Today, Ruby works as a doctor in the NHS and consults companies interested in entering the Chinese market. We discussed how is Chinese healthcare system changing, how competitive is the digital health landscape, and also how do the Chinese data privacy laws impact AI development in China. Enjoy the discussion, and if you haven't yet, do subscribe to the podcast to be notified about new episodes automatically. Additionally, check out our newsletter on fodh.substack.com. It's published on a roughly monthly basis. Now let's dive in today's discussion. Ruby, hi, and thank you for joining this discussion about digital health, innovation and opportunities in China. You actually live in the UK, but you're an expert and consultant for the Chinese market. Can you give us a little bit of a background on how come you're advising on China from London? Yes, of course. Thank you so much, first of all, for the invitation. It's an absolute honor to be invited to speak with you today. And I'm really excited to chat a bit more about my work. I moved back to the London about six months ago, and I was based in China for the past two years. I'm currently the director of a health and life sciences consultancy called Lintris, and I provide kind of strategic advisory on policy and diplomacy from a health point of view, um, global health and development, health tech and innovation, and also regulatory landscape and access, mostly across the UK and Europe and China Asian markets. I'm Chinese by origin, but I grew up in the UK and I'm a practicing doctor by background. I've worked in the UK's national healthcare system as a doctor 
and I transitioned out into health policy and health tech. I was really interested in health beyond the front line. So after doing an MBA, I moved across into startup and health tech. And most recently in China, I had the opportunity to lead the health team for the UK Foreign Office, which was a UK government role. Really interesting, delivering on health policy and program delivery across UK and China. China, really learning about things from a public sector point of view. And also, before I came back to London last year, had the chance to work as health advisor for the United Nations too in China. So I think my career really jumps across different parts of health, both public and private, kind of tech and policy. But I always look for new kind of opportunities to learn and, and grow and see health systems through different lenses so that I can support it in different ways. So it's great to come and speak a bit more about that today too. Can you tell us a little bit more about the role you had as being the head of health for the UK government in China at the British Embassy in Beijing? So how does that kind of bilateral collaboration look like? What are both governments interested in? Does the UK government do programs in China or is it more about the intelligence exchange? What does that role actually entail? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think my role changed a lot throughout the pandemic. So I was meant to start in early 2020 before COVID, but because of you know the pandemic, the way that countries were closed, attention was focused on pandemic management, then I didn't go out there until summer 2020. And at that time, my role was mostly focused on program delivery. At the time, there was a, a fund from the UK government side that was looking to build mutual prosperity, kind of um, industry collaborations, as you said, knowledge exchange across technical health experts, kind of scientific research, hospital collaborations, education and training, especially for the UK, which is expertise in primary care uh, system delivery training kind of China doctors there and sharing best practices. But as the pandemic evolved, obviously there's not feasibility in program delivery and there was definitely a decreased agenda for the UK to continue to provide funding assistance to the China side too. Obviously as China kind of increases its resilience and capacity for its own self to fund in the healthcare space too. So that model of working transitioned and we were delivering projects and trainings between regulatory bodies, the UK's MHRA and China's NMPA, across health commissions. So some primary care system capacity building, including in Wuhan and with some UK counterparts locally, and also other areas of kind of UK expertise, including UK's NISCE, NICE, UK's healthcare health technology assessment expertise was really kind of well regarded in China. So we delivered some technical exchanges with China's National Healthcare Security Administration, which delivers health insurance and reimbursement in China. So various technical exchanges. And then as I continued in that role in China, I also increasingly worked on health policy. So across China and UK's health ministries, what kind of platforms do we have to engage, especially as the pandemic involved so many important issues, including vaccine diplomacy, how we were looking at pandemic preparedness and global health security. So um, pushing ahead kind of platforms where you could talk about what each country's objectives were and how you could better collaborate and, and learn from each other in such an important time when there was so much um, uncertainty in terms of the pandemic. So overall, it was a really, really interesting role. 
Can you maybe explain that a little bit further? So I really wonder what do you see were kind of the key learnings for both countries during your time there? Because you mentioned that you shared a lot of knowledge about the primary care from the NHS to China. China is trying to develop its primary care sector because culturally the Chinese are very used to going directly into hospitals which means that healthcare is more expensive people also wait in line more uh, than they could potentially so to which extent do you see that that trend is changing and how did you know the exchange of knowledge address that yeah so china's healthcare system has developed so radically radically in the in the past few decades Really, a lot of healthcare reforms pushed through by government ministries helped to support that. And we've seen, as you know, kind of health insurance now reported to cover over 95% of the population, um, access to free or affordable care more likely than before. For sure, there's been huge progress, but at the same time, there's still huge urban and rural disparities, partly because of regional variation, literally kind of difficult to access very far away villages and towns. And it's difficult to build infrastructure and brick and mortar in terms of health systems, community care centers so rapidly. At the same time, there's been huge moves. So I think China's Health government is pushing to increase capacity in terms of training um, more general practitioners. And that's why the UK serves as a, a great model to exchange with. The UK's National Health Service has over 70% primary care physicians. And that's partly why it's tutored to be so accessible, affordable, and delivers good quality of care efficiently. Obviously, that's not necessarily the case. And we've seen there being a huge crisis in the NHS, especially throughout this past winter. But at the same time, that kind of primary care heavy model is usually seen to be a great way for health systems to deliver accessible and affordable care. So China really recognizes that and is pushing that ahead. But there's still a far way to go, as you said, Sometimes it's to do with the culture, so the patients who are where the needs are. Despite there being primary care services available, they will still go straight to tertiary and secondary centres because of because they're used to that practice and because they trust the specialists more and they're not used to the idea of having general practitioners who can deliver that gateway model of care. So I think for China's health system to progress, it's really looking at how you can incentivize patients who are requesting and accessing care more likely to access it from the primary care point of view. In the UK, we see that happening because GPs are gatekeepers, so you literally can't go to tertiary care and access specialist services unless by accident and emergency. So having that forced pathway obviously enables patients to go through a certain step-by-step, but we've yet to see that being implemented in China as of yet. And I think obviously today we're talking about digital health, and I do believe that tech is such a great way to help us build capacity more quickly, where you can't build, you know, real hospitals so quickly, you can definitely use technology, including online uh, consultations, including e-pharmacy, including um, digital reimbursement to really push things ahead. And one of the really exciting pieces about China 
even since 2015, is the concept of internet hospitals. I think they were really leading the way um, across the world in terms of trying to push ahead that offline to online transition. It's difficult because even if you have that triad of online consultations, e-pharmacy and e-reimbursement, that does not mean you completely replace the offline hospital. There's so much disparity and discrepancy. And also this kind of transition throws up new challenges, which can actually hinder access and further enhance inequality for patients. But still, it's pretty exciting. And we've seen the COVID pandemic forcing this online transition to further kind of expand and escalate this transition. And obviously in the UK as well, NHS has gone very digital uh, because it's been forced to through the pandemic. But sometimes you do see that countries in Asia, especially China, are more nimble in this kind of transition. So many questions around that, because I think when we are talking about changes in the healthcare systems, there's many forces that are impacting them. So one is the existing system. One is the changes that you might want to see, such as the development of primary care to make care more accessible, uh, to make it a little bit uh, cheaper with the rising costs and the aging population. At the same time, as you mentioned, it's very difficult to very quickly build a lot of new facilities. But on the other hand, what we're seeing is uh, virtual wards, that's one thing, and also the care delivery moving back into the home setting. So clinicians, doctors, nurses, visiting patients at home so patients aren't hospitalized but recover at home if that is possible, if they have the environment that uh, can support that. So to which extent do you see that, you know, all these forces are coalescing in China because we know that WeChat is highly used in China. So I wonder how is it used for healthcare? The Oliver Wyman report says that the Asian consumers are more ready for a digital healthcare future compared to their global peers. And I wonder why that is based on your insights. That's a great question. I think definitely China, we've seen like do this leapfrogging concept in terms of payments, right? So they move from kind of a cash-based society into online payments straight away and skip credit cards. So I think that kind of model for tech definitely applies to the healthcare setting too. A lot of kind of rural regions are now able to access more care, hypothetically, because even though there aren't localized community centers, for example, in the mountains or where it's hard to access for doctors to reach patients and homes, um, they can log on on via WeChat, the the Chinese messaging app. There are lots of mini apps of hospitals and services and hypothetically can access a doctor straight away at a click of their fingers. The, The problem with that is most of these online services are still privatized. And so we see that in the data, most of the patients accessing those online services, even though they're tutored to be more accessible for all of the population, most people accessing the services are kind of wealthy middle class living in the urban areas who access private consultations, mostly for convenience. You know, they don't have to queue up at a hospital where there are long lines. So I think there's this still discrepancy between the idealistic kind of 
you know, where we, we want digital care to provide for patients versus who is actually accessing those services. And I do think a big piece of that is kind of government, public support, and then industry uh, momentum as well. So right now we see a lot of need in China across all of um, social economic statuses, as you mentioned. So aging populations, increasing number of NCDs. This means that there's even kind of urban and wealthy want more care faster and at better quality. At the same time, in terms of the less well-to-do populations in the villages and countryside and in the rural setting, they have increasing healthcare needs. They are also increasing in age, less working force, not necessarily living well, and also wanting to access care but not able to get it when they need. At the same time, from a government and a policy standpoint, there's huge momentum. So Healthy China 2030, other policy for other policies for digitizing healthcare and services, wanting to push ahead support um, for integrating better pathways, promoting primary care models, as we've talked about. And then, of course, kind of from the industry side, there's a huge momentum building kind of better telehealth infrastructure, 5G platforms, kind of VC support, funding, investment, and then big tech in China coming into play as well. So we've seen Tencent, Ali, you know, those big tech companies, Huawei, they all have health sub firms and they've been having those for you know the past decade those have various strategies for how to access the the rich health tech pie so to speak but with varying levels of success as well due to their different KPIs. So it's a really interesting kind of melting pot because COVID has been thrown in the mix that's had you know massive impact on the way the health sector completely diverted away from its traditional and progressive ways of working. And, and the areas it was focused on, which was definitely NCD heavy, uh, the pandemic completely skewed that. And of course, the resulting impact on the economy, kind of cross-border ability for, for foreign entities to come into China, kind of spread talent expertise exchange, and then for Chinese insight to kind of go abroad and really exchange with the international landscape as well. So all of that's been kind of caught up in the past two years. But I think we will see that in 2023 and forwards, because China is opening up now, there are more kind of physical exchanges, more delegations going in and out, and potentially changes in kind of policy as well, not just for healthcare, but also kind of data sharing. So it should be more and more exciting again with a lot of potential. You actually worked as a medical advisor for Ali Health, which is the healthcare division for Alibaba. How did you go, you know, from that governmental role for, for the UK to being a medical advisor for this large tech company? known globally? Yeah, so I mean, that was such an interesting role. I was there for less than a year. And this is prior to this stint for the government in China. So this was back in 2018, 2019. Um, at that time, Alibaba was kind of king, really, in China, a bit different from how it is now, where it's a bit more low key. And there are various issues. But for me, I just wanted I was in China at the time studying for an MBA and I just wanted the opportunity to see firsthand what it's like in such a big tech company. 
Hangzhou is also my family origins hometown, so it was exciting to be able to work from the headquarters there, where Alibaba is based. And I chose to obviously work in Ali Health, which is the health sub company that they run, because I could provide kind of my background in the most useful way. I've been following obviously their trajectory since, but at that time. Ali Health had various interesting strategies. Like most big tech who want a slice of the health pie, they acted almost as a VC. So looking at what great startups there are and acquiring good ideas that they can then bring into their internal product streams and try to deliver. But then their baseline product or strategy was in alignment with their e-commerce main strategy. So they have this e-pharmacy, which has actually been doing quite well throughout and since COVID, where you just sell medicines throughout their existing e-commerce platform. And then they were also looking at how to integrate more into kind of the higher policy structures in China at the time. For example, diagnosis-related groupings, health technology assessments, because as a big tech, they have good connections with Gov, then how to utilize that through the health tech context. But I think with big tech, it's interesting to know, and not just for Ali and Tencent, but also, you know, in the West with Google, with Apple, with Meta, They all want to have a look at health because we all recognize it's a rich resource with huge opportunity. But if your key tech capacity and expertise is not health, you really need to bring in, you know, doctors and tech expertise. So it's not easy to do that. So with Ali Health, they use the Alibaba's e-commerce strategy. With Tencent in China, because we have WeChat, they're obviously focusing on the WeChat mini apps um, and how to provide online consultations. That as a baseline strategy. With Apple in the in the West, you see kind of iWatch and things like that. But for me at that time in 2018, 2019, it was interesting to note that I was one of the only doctors there on the health tech teams. Obviously, I was in a set product team and I didn't have wider oversight, but I was, you know, sitting with software engineers who were reading medical textbooks trying to brush up. And that's not really the way for progress in health tech. And that's not just the case with, you know, big tech too. We see that in a lot of startups. So I advise for kind of incubators and accelerators. And it's really fun to look at lots of pitch decks um, for pre-seed and seed. But a lot of these great smart ideas often need you need to see a chief medical officer. You need to see somewhere within the team where you have actual medical expertise, not just so that your product works for patients, but so you know how to integrate that into that local healthcare system. Mm-hmm. So I think that, that was a really interesting lesson for me to learn back then. And I, it definitely applies to things that I do now as well. Listening to you, I think this is something that you often hear that maybe startup founders don't quite understand healthcare or that large tech companies don't have the understanding of the complexity of healthcare. So, you know, when you're in digital health and you keep hearing this, It's kind of, I'm just surprised that this is still the case, that we still hear this because, you know, you would think that this is no longer a problem, that people have already figured out that you basically need large medical teams because the study of medicine is so long and you can't just do a weekend course to figure it all out. Yeah, no, for sure. But obviously I'm coming from a place of bias as well, being medical by background. 
background. So, um, yes. Today you advise um, companies that are interested in entering the Chinese market. Now, the, the Chinese market is big, so it has a lot of potential from that perspective. But it's also very difficult uh, to succeed in China as a foreigner. What are some of the key things that you see that companies struggle with most when trying to enter China? And perhaps if we go a step back when companies approach you, how much do they already know about the Chinese digital health market and what kind of misconceptions do you see that they often have? Yeah, that's a great question. It's kind of like the golden question. If we knew the straight up answer, then everyone would be succeeding. I definitely think, you know, China's healthcare market is huge. And the, the companies I support, whether they're kind of startup trying to set out, localize in China, form a joint venture, or if it's kind of larger you know, especially big pharma, it's very different strategies because of their existing talent pool, their existing amount of resources and so on. There's a huge healthcare market, but with digital health, it's kind of unique because it throws up different types of challenges. So if you're a big pharma trying to get into China, trying to sell drugs and products, you probably have existing networks and your difficulties would be getting your product approved through China's regulatory authorities. So your KPIs would be um, maintaining good channels of influence, knowing which China government and you know ministries to be talking to and then to be lobbying for your products and then to be then accessing the market through good networks with hospitals and localized kind of industry suppliers and things like that but then if you're talking about digital health it's almost a different beast because china's kind of data privacy online offline cross border data transfer ip issues are very, very strict and have always been, not just for health data, but for data across the board. So probably a big statement to make, but I would say that we've not really yet seen a foreign entity succeed in China in digital health at all. Other, you know, medical devices, pharma, you name it, even robotics, you know, that's way more possible because there's a product and you can regulate it. But in terms of digital, it's much, much harder because of all of those wider data issues and so on. Doesn't mean people stop trying because it's such a rich market of potential and, you know, huge population. People can't resist. But for example, for the UK, even in 2018, when the prior PM, Theresa May, went to China in the golden era of UK-China relations, they signed many MOUs, including with UK digital health companies like Babylon and Medopad, now Humor, partnering with Tencent, with Big Tech in China, talking about bilateral collaborations in digital health. And three, four years later, none of those MOUs and, and partnerships have come to play because of these wider difficulties which are unique to digital. So I would say if you're kind of a foreign entity wanting to access the market in China, it is not easy. You would definitely need to focus on localization. That's always my key message when I'm kind of advising or delivering training courses. The really key thing is to understand government in China. Policy is so important. You can't just do your own thing. I mean, people say that industry in China is kind of the Wild West, anything goes. But then you're competing with localized Chinese firms who know how it works, who know the culture, who to speak to, and which government influences 
to be connecting with. And the health health ministries and their roles, respectively, in policy and regulatory and in reimbursement, they're hugely different. The approval processes, the laws that are coming into play, all of those are so specific to China and nowhere else that you really need a good understanding of the language, of the culture and local partners. I would say, though, there's always ways around in terms of accessing the market. And there's, for example, regional health ministries, kind of regional collaborations and partnerships or direct-to-hospital partnerships are where a lot of kind of foreign companies might want to start because regionally in China, the way kind of government structures work is cities and municipal and provinces, they will have annual KPIs and innovation is always a huge target. So they will have kind of more flexible policies, more willingness to work with different types of talented partners to engage and push ahead their own KPIs. And you often see that more companies now are looking at different regions in China rather than looking at Beijing or Shanghai, which are known to to be, you know, big biotech hubs. At the same time, there's also kind of specialized economic zones, for example, in the Greater Bay Area in the south of China, Guangzhou and Shenzhen, or even in Hainan, um, one of the more tropical islands in the south, which have different types of policies and and much more welcoming towards uh, foreign entities coming in as well for collaboration. And then I would say finally that we shouldn't forget kind of working with China outside of China because so many Chinese health tech companies and health companies in general want to access the global space too. So they're working outwards. They're going abroad overseas. For example, we see kind of Tsinghua University Science Park has offices and and science parks in Cambridge, in the UK, across the world. They are moving outwards because they believe they already have the talent and the capacity and the knowledge to start expanding the China model towards the outside. And because then they have links back to China, sometimes it might be a nice idea to be collaborating with Chinese-born tech, but outside of China where there's perhaps easier ways around um, the very difficult kind of data privacy and IP laws and things within China too. So not easy and definitely always a case-by-case basis, very heavily dependent on networks and on government understanding, but always a huge amount of opportunity and definitely even more so now that we're through a different phase of the pandemic now. When you say that uh, the whole situation around the data privacy and working with the government is very strict in China, what do you mean by that? So things that I've heard in the past uh, were that uh, basically, if you're willing to share the data with the Chinese government, then it's going to be, you will be able to, you know, do business. But if that's something that you are not keen on doing, then you might have a problem. So can you maybe elaborate a little bit further on what is the relationship that you have to have with the government and the regulations? And what do you mean with the strict uh, data privacy challenges? Yeah, so definitely, as you said, if you're coming in with a product, digital, which is, you know, if it's an AI machine learning platform, it will have data integrated into it to form that model and those algorithms. You'll have to kind of share all of that with China in order to access. But I think the greater problem is bringing that back out. So if you're bringing a model into China and you're 
updating, optimizing it with perhaps ventures in China, it's very difficult to then access Chinese data to build that model further to make it applicable to the China health system and Chinese patients, first of all. Really difficult to form those bridges if you're foreign and coming in. And then on the flip side too, if somehow you manage to do that, you create really great algorithms and, you know, data structures and models um, that are applicable and, and show efficacy and effectiveness in China, whether that's diagnostics and so on, you can't then bring that back out of China. That data is stuck. You cannot take that out. And, you know, that goes back to this global problem we have. What is, what does, what counts as data? Is it the product itself, which is built from the data? So then that means you can't actually bring your AI product out of back, out of China. So kind of all of these barriers each step of the way means that it's very, very difficult for digital uh, to progress if you're outside coming in. This is kind of the same but different if you're purely Chinese and wanting to bring your product out of China. It's just that kind of cross-border transfer, which is so important to kind of health tech growth. It's really, really difficult in health tech. It's, this is why, for example, if you're maybe a medical device, then it's like obviously software as a medical device is kind of the gray area in between. But if you're a medical device where there are much clearer standards regulatory on what can be accessed and what can be regulated, then it's perhaps slightly easier. Still difficult compared to kind of pharma, which has kind of decades of templates of how to regulate and how to access. But I think pure digital is really, really difficult. But, you know, hopefully with time as government from a top-down level, from a regulatory stance and policy-making level, starts defining what they count as data, what they count as product, and then how they want to regulate that from a health-specific point of view, then maybe we will see these trends changing. Because I do think that Digital health and health data is different from other data. It's kind of sitting at the intersection of health, which is a huge China priority, intersection of emerging technologies and innovation, which is also a huge priority, and also kind of data processing. So all of these are top KPIs for kind of China's longer term agenda, not just political, but also social and economic. So I am personally optimistic that we will see step change in this piece slowly, Maybe expedited because of COVID, there is so much tension on health like it never was before. So I do think there will be change to come and then we will hopefully see progress here because everyone understands that when you do collaborate on health, the beneficiary is everybody at the end of the day. So it's less sensitive and hopefully less to do with security and more about kind of widespread collaboration and then kind of mutual learning and engagement, and then building stronger health systems across the board. You kind of made the entry to the market sound very unattractive, even <laughs> though, you know, it's it's 1.5 billion people. That's what makes it appealing as yeah. you described it yourself. But one thing that I'm also kind of wondering is anytime I think about China, I think about the the book uh, from Kai Fu Li, uh, AI Superpowers, mm. which kind of compares the AI development in the US and in China. And if I would have to summarize it, I would say that 
Kaifuli describes it as the Chinese being way more ambitious and hungry for success compared to their U.S. counterparts that are primarily driven by visions, by like higher goals for improving the society, which is less in the primary focus in China. So in a sense, he describes Chinese entrepreneurs as much more dangerous is not the right word, but maybe more even more persistent than their U.S. counterparts. And one of the things that he warns is that even if you do enter the Chinese market, there's just going to be someone that's going to be able to copy you very quickly and work much harder for the copy to succeed uh, compared to the original. So any comments there? Yeah, I really respect Kai Fili and AI Superpowers is such a great book. I remember reading that and learning so much from it a few years ago when I read it. I definitely agree with all of the things he said. When I was in China around about that time, so 2018-19, when the book came out, it was definitely the case. I was interested in learning about China's health tech space. I described it earlier, it was definitely a wild, wild west, like anything went. You have, you know, so many companies for any type of idea, it will exist already and then be replicated a hundredfold. And it's almost who is willing to put in more effort work harder, put in more hours, and then get those networks and stakeholders by whatever means, you know, dirty or clean. And it's definitely, you know, very daunting to come in and and learn about that kind of landscape. But it's where kind of you see natural selection happen almost, and then the best peaks out. And I think what makes an idea or a small startup succeed is really luck at the end of the day, you know, if they manage to come across an investor who likes their idea, if they get to pitch to big tech like Ali and then get eaten up, if they go along the right incubator and get that kind of support, or if they're in the right city or region where there's government funding for innovation and they hop onto that train. So you see all types of strategies play out. People would use those and leverage them at will, work with government, hop on to whoever has better networks. And for me, I didn't really see a kind of a template or a pathway to success for any of those startups. And honestly, I would say, because it's such big turnover, the ones that I got to know and got to chat to and became excited by, I would say, you know, maybe like 0.1% of those ones then existed now. But that's kind of fine because I guess the mentality of the startup world in China, not just true to health, but to all sectors is they don't give up. So if you don't succeed with one idea, you easily give that up and hop on to the next one. And there's kind of no losses, really. So that's really, really kind of resilient framework to work against. Kaifu Lee has his venture called Sinovation Ventures. And he was really obviously interested in the startup space and looking to kind of latch on to and acquire to big ideas and smart people and invest in them. And when I was working at Ali, again, always on the lookout for smart people. I remember on any given day, looking at a selection of medical devices, maybe five out of 10 would be some kind of wristwatch like wearable, like not one is better than the next. Maybe one is prettier, maybe one is, you know, more funding at one point in time, but not really necessarily any originality. And I think one thing that Kaifu Lee highlighted was that how important is originality really? It's not, it's about 
how good you know the founder is and how good their impact and network building is rather than anything else and in health definitely this kind of contrast between do you go for kind of the greenfield where you're coming up with something truly innovative or do you go back to the brownfield where something already exists but you're just increasing the efficiency you're addressing a, a true gap in the system with something that might be really boring but actually have wider impact and I think that kind of mentality you also see that more in the UK innovative landscape too like for me to have come back to the UK in the past six months I'm getting back in touch with health tech here and most startups that I see they have a lot of similar products. They'll be talking about improving efficiency and medical records keeping, not necessarily like the hottest space to be working in and the brightest, spiciest idea, but still potentially with a lot of impact. And they work small and they're resilient and they will work with the trust, get evidence, build that up, and then move on to bigger and better networks. So I think Post-COVID, everyone is looking at health differently. There's a lot of attention and, and excitement, and therefore people that don't necessarily have healthcare expertise will want to come in and do something in this space, which, as we've mentioned, is obviously comes with a caveat, but also I think should be encouraged, right? Not just someone who is a boring doctor should be allowed to talk about health, but anyone with good ideas should be allowed to come in and work crazily for their passions. And, you know, when Kai Fili wrote his book, at that time in China, there was this 996 culture in tech, which I'm sure you've heard about, which is where you work 9am to 9pm, six days a week or more. And that was not discouraged by big tech to move KPIs across the board. I mean, there's been a, a lot of backlash since then. And, you know, even I think Jack Ma, like Pony Ma, like heads of big tech companies in China have come out and said, we've never encouraged this type of working behavior. But definitely this huge like push to work hard to get your goals has been the case throughout the past years for sure in China. There's uh, many comments I could have here. You know, I was in Israel a few months ago and there mm. was this sign in one of the beach bars, which I absolutely loved. And it said that basically serendipity is when preparedness uh, meets luck. So, mm. you know, when we talk about luck, it doesn't mean that there's not tons of work behind it, yeah. but regardless of how much you work, as you said yourself, you still, at the end of the day, need to be somehow lucky that you meet the right people to progress anything anything you're doing. And also Daniel Kahneman in the book, Thinking Fast Slow, talks about that, how especially in entrepreneurship, we keep looking for recipes for success. You know, when you've got a successful company, everybody wants to know like the exact steps that the founders took, like how the company developed. But at the end of the day, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's actually transferable to other use cases. So I thought that that was kind of interesting that you kind of highlighted that. Yeah, definitely. And is it when you were in China, did you have any encounters uh, with the healthcare systems that, you know, you could do any comparisons in terms of your own personal experiences with the Chinese healthcare systems compared to the NHS? Yeah, so many, <laughs> not just for myself, but for family and for friends. We, we talked about there's kind of universal healthcare coverage for over 95% to 98% of the population, but there's three forms of insurance. There's urban residential insurance, 
there's urban workers insurance and then there's rural residential insurance and for the Chinese population different amounts of coverage for different types of healthcare services so still huge disparities despite that umbrella of accessible coverage of insurance for someone with a foreign passport then you can't access those types of insurance unless you pay tax but whether you're a foreigner or you're a Chinese national a lot of people in China will then access private insurance through that company or through their out of pocket so kind of anecdotally for myself and just around and kind of the research i've done kind of different projects interviews and things there's still huge disparity and a lot of the time if you can afford it people will pay to skip the queue they will pay for private healthcare services in china you have huge chains of fancy hospitals where you know the top floor will be this vip ward almost like a shangri-la hotel type situation great food not necessarily better care because the doctors will have been trained through the same pathways but kind of the rest of it like skipping queues nicer surroundings whereas in public health hospitals where there's still this idea in china's general public that the public hospitals have the best expertise because a doctor there will be seeing hundreds of patients a day rather than a doctor in a private hospital who might see 20 or 30 so they get a volume and they get experience through patient interaction but then the downside is that they will have like 2 minutes with every patient and you you know I've visited those hospitals before you'll have a patient seeing a doctor who will not know who you are they will be bringing in their own files you know in a folder the doctor won't have time to look through them belly has time to make eye contact with the patient and then the doors actually open so there's other patients peeking around the corner waiting for their turn absolutely no privacy so still people prefer to queue up at those hospitals especially like the elderly population who have ideas of what what good healthcare means and what they trust despite so they're kind of balancing what they think is expertise versus the quality of the care in other ways it's, it's kind of really interesting to see that and as we mentioned before kind of primary care facilities are building up so especially you've seen in in terms of the pandemic like vaccination centers for covid vaccines public health kind of maternal and childcare can be delivered efficiently in a primary care kind of social service center model and you see kind of definitely more urban residents access those pathways because they do see oh yeah that is there for me i don't have to queue at a hospital for something that is not urgent but i think that mentality from a patient point of view still needs to change massively and then if you're someone who doesn't have the luxury of being able to pay out of pocket it is really 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 difficult still um there's huge disparity but i think in terms of health tech as we're talking about today and these kind of like online consultations which have been pushed ahead and actually china's government made a lot of online consultations free throughout covid if especially if they were covid relevant symptoms just to boost kind of health systems and make sure there wasn't a backlog then you see that being a lot more affordable so obviously an online video consultation would be much cheaper than a face to face so that is also an interesting trend that we're seeing but overall i think there's a long way to go and i mean what we were talking about at the beginning when we were talking about 
internet hospitals and online models of care providing so much potential in terms of leapfrogging and making things more affordable to patients, even if it's private versus public, there's still huge challenges that come through. Some specialties, for example, mental health, might be more easily transitioned from offline to online because both diagnosis and therapy consist of communication, whereas things like obviously surgery, other specialties which require physical examination, that's much harder to transition online. So then you see certain specialties not being able to catch up with others in terms of service delivery when it comes to digital health. You also see that, you know, for example, with digital literacy, if patients don't have access to tech, then they obviously can't access tech services in terms of health. Also, this idea that a lot of the time clinicians are expected to serve tech. So an example I have really is I was doing this internet hospitals project a couple of years ago in China for a startup. And we found that when an internet hospital is built, a lot of the time they are connected with a physical hospital and then the physical hospital doctors are delivering, you know, face-to-face consultations in their daytime. And then at lunchtime, they're expected to be hopping on to the apps to then deliver online consultations. And then when there's things going wrong, for example, bugs in the system, problems with the app, there was no one computer team and no software engineering team at the hospital hired to sort out those problems. And then the doctors were having to spend extra time in their day to help out on those And then no matter what, the online app platforms where there were like very poor infrastructure for health record keeping, those were then not connected with the offline hospital records. So then the same doctors are having to copy across texting, typing out on their keyboards, copying across data records from the apps then to their hospital records. So like, I think there's always huge excitement when it comes to tech transition and health, but the background kind of less exciting infrastructure buildup and all of those problems that seem small from the outset, but kind of rapidly expand and can cause huge barriers to then escalation and progression have to be really, really considered. And I don't think a lot of the internet hospitals in China today have really dealt with those problems that I've talked about. So again, still lack of software engineering support, lack of medical record, pathways connection, integration across systems, all of those bits are still yet to be solved. But at the same time, we've got kind of policies talking about hotshots, AI, virtual reality, robotics, and then the background boring bits, which are really key to moving things forward, are still yet to be tackled. Yeah. Yeah. In the end, you realize that that is a problem that is present everywhere. So even if uh, healthcare systems defer these kind of challenges with integrations, with connectivity between systems, because healthcare is just too broad and complex for one company to solve all the problems, is um, a challenge everywhere. We could probably spend another hour talking <laughs> about the healthcare challenges, China and the, the UK, but Uh, We will wrap up for today. Are there any last thoughts that you have on digital health innovation in China? Or I don't know what kind of got you thinking when you returned to to London and uh, are now again part of the, the NHS as the healthcare system provider? What did you perhaps like in China more than you would 
like uh, in the NHS? Such a great question and something I'm really thinking about every day. I think for me, I just, it was such a great opportunity for me to learn about China's health system at first hand. I have a lot of personal drive to do that, you know, being kind of multicultural by background too, um, learning about kind of the language and the culture of my roots and then also being able to bring in kind of my kind of technical perspective into it. And it's interesting to have sat, not sat, but worked in the UK on the front line throughout COVID, looking at China from afar, you know, how things were spreading out of Wuhan and so on, and then moving to China and then working on health from the other angle and then looking back at the UK from far away and looking at how, you know, social distancing and policies here were successful or not successful. And then kind of coming back now and not only working on UK and China, kind of broader, kind of looking at different health systems, you know, in the UK, in Europe, uh, in the US, sorry, and also in Europe, for example, in Germany, in France. It's really interesting that all of these health systems, these doctors, these governments have various expertise and experience come at addressing healthcare challenges with such different legacies and structures, like with varying levels of success, really. You can't say that one health system, for example, did well or badly throughout COVID. I mean, you can highlight some examples of terrible management and policy implementation, but who has really done excellently? We can't really say a single one has. And the way that tech plays a role in escalating or even hindering that progress in terms of kind of communication or lack of transparency in the other way, I found that really, really interesting. And I guess for me, it's just trying to see the different case-by-case bases in which we can address challenges, looking at one disease section, looking at one particular policy in, in one country, where can we bring this spark of expertise and this, you know, answering interest and then build that direct collaboration, because I think looking at the wider picture is so crucial, but so impossible. So I think that's what I'm trying to do at the moment, like work on kind of small but scalable things and bring in what I can to the table, but always with a view to learn. And I think something that I'm really interested in developing in the next years is not only continue working across this intersectional space, especially on policy and on on tech from a health point of view, but also more on global health too, I think. I think there's so so much interest and excitement and kind of South-South cooperation, North-South-South cooperation, not just kind of Europe and China, but also with LATAM, with the African continent, with the Middle East. Where can we kind of bring that expertise across the board to build? You know, for example, we talk about leapfrogging in China. I mean, that's such a case in Africa right now, the intersection of global health and technology, bridging those gaps where you can't access patients in really remote regions That's something that China actually has more experience in doing than somewhere like the UK has. But then China can't do that on its own. So how can we bring together the varying expertise to do that? So really excited to work more on that kind of thing too. But also really nice to be back in the UK. I'm practicing as well as a doctor some days a month. It's nice to get in touch with my roots and see where the challenges are day to day so that I can actually bring specific first-hand insight to the table when I'm working on kind of higher higher level stuff too. Yeah, really enjoying it. Good to be back. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health, a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. 
If you enjoyed the show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast, subscribe to the show or follow us on LinkedIn. Additionally, check out our newsletter. You can find it at fodh.substack.com. That's fodh.substack.com. Stay tuned. Thank you.